All praise is due to Allah and may Allah's peace and blessings be on His last Prophet Muhammad وسلم, and on all those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day. The topic of today's khutbah was the fear of death. The Imam began the presentation by asking the question why do we fear death? Why do we fear something which we have not tried out? Normally we fear fire because we have been burnt by it. So it's something we have experienced. And, and from that experience we understand its dangers and its harm etc. And as such we fear it. This is the normal practice. So why is it then that we fear death since none of us have experienced it to come back and to speak about it. He proposed that the reason for our fear is perhaps partly instinctual. This is something which is shared with all the animals. That all of Allah's creatures have a natural desire to try to survive to not allow itself to be destroyed this is something built in every one of Allah's creatures but beyond that we who above the remainder of Allah's creatures have an ability to intellectually understand, to go beyond our instincts, why then do we fear something which must come, something which is unavoidable? And at the same time, we love so dearly, so deeply, something which must go, this world, and the things of this world. It's a question that we do need to reflect on. If our intelligence was serving us properly then we shouldn't fear something which is unavoidable death which comes to everyone we know will come no matter what we do we will die something that is so definite we should not have a fear of and the thing that we know we will lose we know without a doubt that we cannot take this world with us. We will leave everything behind, everything we have gathered, house, car, wife, children, everything. We cannot take them with us. We are absolutely certain about that. So, 
then our intellect, if it is serving us well, it should tell us that we cannot become too attached to this world. However, the opposite is the reality. We fear death and we love this world. And this is one of the signs of our times. It is something which the Prophet Muhammad predicted would happen to Muslims. Because in his time, his companions were not afraid of death. And that is why they defeated peoples around them who were far greater and stronger than them militarily, far greater in numbers, because those people they were fighting feared death. But they didn't. And the Imam gave a number of different examples from the time of the Prophet and it would behoove all of us to read of the lives of the Sahaba, the companions of the Prophet Muhammad to read the authentic stories of their lives. There's a book called Companions of the Prophet, written by, uh, or compiled and translated by uh, Abdul Wahid, published in England. Very good collection of uh, stories of the companions. The material is for the most part authentic material, there are three volumes to it, three books actually. It's very important for us to read of these stories, to have our children read of these stories, because it gives us something of the feeling of that earlier generation, that early generation of Muslims, what their understanding of Islam did, what, it, what did it do for them. How did it change them? How did it make them different from the people of their times? Because the Prophet ﷺ spoke of the time in the future. 1400 years ago he spoke of a time when the world would partake in the destruction of the Muslim Ummah. The way that the animals, you know, when you, if you've got a group of animals, dogs or whatever, and you put a plate down with food, they all rush on the plate, Every, everyone is sticking its mouth and they're just gobbling up the food. He gave this metaphor, this symbol, that plate of food represented the Muslims of the future. And the companions asked him, was it because the Muslims would be few in the future? Would the, would the numbers of Muslims get smaller and smaller and smaller until the world was, you know, everybody had congregated against them and could easily destroy them? He said, no. Their numbers will be many. Their numbers will be many. 
And we always hear how many Muslims there are on the earth, about a third of the population or a quarter of the population, over one billion Muslims. And we see the reality of the Muslims. But he said there will be many, but they would be like the bubbles, the foam produced by the flood. And the flood comes through and it takes things away and it turns them up. There, is bu- there are bubbles which are create- created on the surface of the flood, having no strength, weak, useless. That's what they would be like. Many in numbers, billion, but they will be useless. And he went on to explain that they are useless because there had spread amongst them a love, a deep, strong love of this life and a fear of death. Death, the fear of death had reached into their hearts so deeply that they would do anything to stay alive. They would do anything to collect the trinkets of this world. And because of that, the nations would destroy them. And this is our state today. And of course, this state is not going to change until Muslims once again come back to the realization of the reality of this life and to the essence of the faith of Islam the religion which is not just a series of rituals you will see people come into the masjid who will pray but they are not praying you will see them playing with their headscarves checking their watches leaning on one foot and switching to the other foot cracking their knuckles doing all kinds of things praying but not praying because what is prayer about? They really don't know. It's just a ritual that my parents do and I'm doing it. That's the state of Islam throughout the Muslim world. People are doing it because their parents did it. Why they did it, they don't really know because their grandparents did it. But what is the purpose of prayer? What is prayer supposed to do for us? Are we doing Allah a favor by praying? Allah needs our prayer. Are we praying because we need to pray? And if we need to pray, why do we need to pray? These are the realities that we have to grasp for prayer to become meaningful. For Islam to become Meaningful to become a way of life and not just a series of rituals. And when Islam becomes a way of life, 
in truth, then we will lose the fear of death. And we will then be able to make Muslims the source of guidance for this world the examples of righteousness the upholders of the law the divine law which should govern the lives of mankind but the reality is that we today fear death because we don't know what comes after it we don't know what we are going to find when we die it is an unknown though Allah has told us in great detail about what we will find he has explained to us when a person dies what happens the angels coming taking the spirit the, you know everything the whole process you know being in the state of the grave the resurrection the judgment crossing over the you know the bridge you know going to paradise going to hell what is in paradise what is in hell this is all the unknown but Allah through revelation has explained it to us in vivid detail but because our faith has not gone beyond the state of meaningless rituals then it remains unknown all that has been explained is meaningless it's still the great unknown and human knowledge which has advanced over the centuries it has advanced fundamentally in the material areas societies have evolved materially the technology is all in the material sphere it has not explained or dissected or improved the quality of human spiritual life because the most technologically advanced societies are the ones in which the people are the most self-destructive it's the reality you find those societies that are building going to the moon etc these are the same societies that are destroying the various uh, creatures and the vegetation the atmosphere I mean they're destroying the world at the same time that they're advancing technologically they're destroying the world and they destroy themselves you find that the rate of murder suicide AIDS diseases etc etc is just higher and higher and higher amongst them So this tells us, for those of us who reflect, that the advancement in technology 
really does not provide stability to society. But ultimately, the stability comes in faith. It is spiritually based. And it is only when a people are spiritually advanced that they find stability in this life. This is one of the things which amazed some Westerners and caused them to become Muslims when they saw they came across Muslims under the worst of circumstances yet they seem to have a spiritual calmness an ability to deal with their circumstance in spite of the severity of the calamities which befell them and this is coming out of Islam there is no way that the Western society can explain how it is that some people will seek death whether today or whether in the past when those early empires came across the Muslims they tried to understand they brought them sat them down and tried to understand from them how it is that these people were not afraid of death they couldn't understand it then and the society cannot understand it today so for us those of us who realize the inescapable that is death we realize it is something we cannot escape and we have a commitment to Islam a commitment to faith then we have to prepare ourselves because if we in fact accept that death is inevitable and we consider ourselves to be practicing Muslim then our actions should reflect our preparation for death now preparation for death doesn't mean as for some people you take your uh, coffin you buy it from today you know this is the cloth that they wrap your body with when you die you know you love people they will buy it now then you go to Mecca and you wash it in Zamzam water you see and you take it back and keep it in your cupboard no this is not uh, this is not what it's meant when we say we prepare for death because of the fact that we have understood what is coming after that we will be held to account for what we do in this life we prepare for death by doing what Allah has commanded us to do in this life in order that we would achieve in the next life what he has promised this is how we prepare ourselves properly for death we understand that 
it doesn't make sense to fear death. Because if we fear death, then in fact we are fearing Allah who created death. And Allah has promised us or informed us that He created life and death in order to test us who is the best in deeds. We are enjoined to fear Allah, but not fear in the sense that we avoid. See, because you have two forms of fear. This is the fear that we're talking about which is not acceptable. We are commanded by Allah to fear Him. This is a part of faith. Fear Him in the sense of fearing the harm that will come to us as He has promised if we disobey Him. This is how we fear Him. Not that we fear like you fear fire by avoiding fire. You fear a lion by running away from it. Now we don't fear Allah in that way, running away from Allah, because you cannot run away from Allah. And we, that's the way we do not fear death. We do not fear death by trying to run away from it, trying to escape it, because we can't escape it. We fear it in the sense that we know that it is coming, and we fear to be unprepared for it. That aspect of fear we all should have. But the fear which has become rooted in people's hearts, in all of our hearts, wherein we are trying to avoid it at any cost, that fear we have to root out. We have to replace it by preparation by acceptance of the reality and by preparing ourselves for it. As Allah has told us in the Quran, we should make the dua inna salati wa nusuki wa mahyaya wa muadji lillahi rabbil alameen that is verily our prayer and rites of worship, sacrifice, our life and our death should be dedicated to Allah in accordance with the will of Allah, the Lord of all the worlds. This dua should be a reality in our lives. Because whatever good we do in this life, we are doing it for ourselves. This is the believer who understands that death is a reality, he has to prepare for it, he does so by realizing that whatever good he does in this life, he or she does in this life, it is for themselves. It is for ourselves. Whatever evil we do, ultimately is against ourselves. We might think we are getting back at somebody, or hurting somebody in this life. Yes, we are hurting them, but in the end, if what we have done is unjust, then we are hurting our own selves more. Because the hurt of this life is nothing in comparison to the hurt of the next life. This is why Allah said that whatever evil we do in this life is really against ourselves. Because the, the greater result, the greater punishment for that evil or the harm that comes from it comes on ourselves in the next life. So death for us 
is just a transition something which is unavoidable and as such we should go to the graveyards remind ourselves that it's coming that transition is coming we should visit the sick visit the sick to comfort them and also to remind ourselves that we can get sick anytime and from that sickness we can die health is something which is a blessing from Allah which He can take away at any time so we need to prepare in our health for the times of our sickness and of course the worst that can happen to us as Muslims as we have been taught by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the worst that can happen to us is that we die in a state of shirk we die in a state of worshipping others besides Allah others along with Allah and the only way that we can protect ourselves from such a situation is by understanding the principle of Tawheed well and applying it on our lives unfortunately much of what is written about Islam when we look at the spectrum of materials in any given library on Islam we'll find much material talking about economics Islamic State crime and punishment Salah Zakah but very little material on Tawheed you'll find books talking about the fundamentals of Islam and Tawheed is given a paragraph Allah is one finish as a result those people who read and study about Islam today oftentimes miss some of this essential material which should form the basis of everything else our economics our politics everything our prayer everything has to be built on a solid foundation of Tawheed Tawheed which is not just a word Allah being one or the oneness of Allah is more than just that statement it represents the framework of the life of the believer so it is essential for us to understand how Tawheed should operate in all of the facets of our lives so for those of us whose readings are limited in this area I would suggest that they try to find whatever material is available and I would personally recommend a book which I have written called The Fundamentals of Tawheed if you haven't read it then it is very essential for you to read it 
it is perhaps one of the few books available in the Islamic uh, library which deals in depth with the essential principles concerning Tawheed. And the Imam went on in the second part of the khutbah to remind us that when we die, as the Prophet ﷺ told us, all of our deeds in this life end. There is nothing more that we can do in this life. But we may continue to benefit after our death from three basic actions that we have done in this life. One, charity which we have done from which people continue to benefit knowledge which we have passed on which continues to guide others and a child who we have left behind raised righteously who prays for us so part of our preparation for death should involve giving as much in charity as we can because if we know what is coming afterwards and we know that the only thing that can benefit us after we die is charity which people continue to benefit from then we need to try to find as many avenues for us to give of our wealth so that we will continue to be able to benefit from it after we die. We need to find out as much about Islam as we can and to educate others so that those others will educate others and that knowledge that we pass on not only benefits us personally in this life but continues to benefit others which would in turn benefit us in the next life. And we prepare for death also by looking after our children well. By trying to educate them as best as we can primarily from an Islamic perspective. Of course, we have a duty to prepare them to survive in this world. So secular education is a part and parcel of their education. However, we should not allow that secular education and the need for it to become the most important aspect of education in their lives. We should emphasize to them and we should find avenues for them to educate themselves spiritually by our examples by materials that we have them read by bringing them in contact with other righteous young people by involving them in gatherings wherein righteousness is spoke about spoken about etc and the Prophet Muhammad said that whoever's last words were La ilaha illallah would enter paradise. And this is not something which is easy for one who has not lived La ilaha illallah. It is not something wherein a person on the deathbed who has lived a corrupt life 
you may be able to go to that person and tell them to say La ilaha illallah <coughs> and they are able to blurt it out before they die. No. These words can only be said in a way acceptable to Allah by a person who has lived La ilaha illallah. So if we want our last words to be La ilaha illallah, if we want to enter paradise as the Prophet ﷺ said, then we have to live La ilaha illallah now. And a part of that preparation, as Abdullah ibn Umar quoted the Prophet ﷺ as saying, was that if we have anything to will to others that we want to be given to others after our death we should not allow two nights to pass <coughs> without writing it down Ibn Omar had said that when he heard this statement of the Prophet he didn't allow from that point onward in his life any opportunity to pass to record what he wanted to leave behind. This is part of the awareness of death. So many people are caught. They had intentions of leaving things for others. But because they are unaware of death, they die and they never have the opportunity to write down what it is, what special things they wanted done to be left behind for others. So, it is our duty. If we are to be believers in reality and not believers merely due to having Arabic sounding names if we are to be believers in reality, then we have to be amongst those who prepare for death. We cannot have in our hearts a fear, an overwhelming fear of death. Instead, we have to have an awareness of the reality of death, of what is to come which is reflected in our preparations whilst we are living. In all aspects of our lives we prepare ourselves for the inevitable. That is basically the summary of the, the khutbah, today's presentation. If anybody would like to raise any questions concerning the topic of the khutbah or they would like to add anything. Did you say anything about the Jews taking a thing of the chosen people? Uh, our brother is mentioning a point which was raised concerning the, the Jews who Allah spoke of in the Quran and in the surah that he recited, Surah Al-Jum'ah, 
the Jews who claim to be the beloved of Allah, the chosen people of Allah. Allah says to us to tell them, then wish for death. But they will not wish for death because of what evil they have done. They know they are not really the chosen of Allah. It is something which is said. However, the evil which they have done puts in their hearts a fear of death. A great fear of death. And this statement of Allah Taala concerning the Jews is not merely for us to know that the Jews make this claim and in fact they fear death. This is to show us. It's like a mirror. Is the image in that mirror the same as Allah has described? When we look into our own lives, are we doing as the Jews did? Don't Muslims throughout the world think that they are going to paradise merely because they are Muslims? Because their parents are Muslims? But in fact they fear death. That is the reality. We have become like the Jews, the hypocrites. Any other uh, comments or? Uh, I'll just mention there's some questions sent up uh, from the sisters. Understanding that dua kunut should be read during the winter prayer. Is one allowed to recite any other surah, I guess, or any other dua? Well, first thing to note is that the dua kunut is not something which the Prophet read or recited or said every time that he prayed with her. Though it has become the standard practice amongst Muslims today that they understand it to be a part and parcel of the witter prayer. In other words, it should be said it is necessary for witter. In fact, it was not said by the Prophet all the time at all. Sometimes he said it, sometimes he didn't. We have two narrations of it. One uh, commonly used by the Hanafi school and not the other commonly used by the Shafi'i school of uh, Islamic law. However, both of them are authentic. One may choose whichever one one wishes or use both of them, which is even better, and use it on occasion and on occasion not. It should not just become a ritual that we just do it automatically, automatically like that, because when it becomes like that, then you lose consciousness of it. But when you choose to use it sometimes and choose not to use it other times, then it becomes more real, more alive.
another question is talking permitted during your session of the Jumu'ah Khutbah well talking during the Khutbah itself uh, is not permitted uh, what is coming after this uh, explanation summary of the Khutbah and explanation of it of course this is not the same as the Khutbah of Jumu'ah so if one talks one is not in a state of sin as one would be during the, the khutbah. However, the purpose of the gathering here is to get an understanding of what was said, to impart certain knowledge, etc. And so just that the gathering be meaningful, it makes sense that one should be attentive, listen to what has been said, so one may benefit, one may learn something. And if the talking that one does distracts other people, makes it difficult for them to hear and to understand what is being said, then such an act is somewhat selfish and uh, somewhat uh, unacceptable Islamically. Another question concerning zakah, women's gold, the amount necessary for the payment of zakah is 85 grams. Is zakat due on any amount over 85 grams or is zakat due on the entire amount? It's due on the entire amount. Once a person's wealth reaches the level of the nisab, what is called the nisab or the, low, the lowest or the minimum uh, amount on which zakat is due, once your wealth reaches that amount, then the zakah is taken from all of your wealth not merely on the amount which is above it please clarify the hadith concerning gold and the wives of the Prophet وسلم, and zakah does the meaning of this hadith imply that wearing or having gold can take one to hell or having gold in excess of the nisab can take one to hell. Thank you. Uh, this uh, hadith, or the hadiths which were in Prophet came across some of the women companions of his time, found them wearing large gold bangles, and asked them if they wished to wear a bangle of fire on the Day of Judgment. Uh, these hadiths are considered by the majority of Muslim scholars not to imply that the wearing of gold is prohibited for women, that it is sinful, but that if one has wealth on which one has not given the due which Allah has set, then that wealth becomes a source of punishment on the day of judgment. You know, as Allah describes in the Quran, those people who on the day of judgment would be branded by the wealth which they hoarded in this life. 
there is a minority view that um, gold is prohibited for women as it is prohibited for men but as I said this is a minority view with some qualifications the majority of Muslim scholarship has held that it is permissible for them based on the other narrations in which Prophet said that gold and silk are prohibited for the males of my ummah and permitted for the females uh, any other questions? Does this include things like gold food or gold plates like pants? The prohibition of gold for men, does this include gold teeth and gold pens, gold eyeglasses, or gold plated items? Well, as far as gold plated items go, you know, whether it be jewelry or, or not, uh, these are not included. Because when, it's, when gold is spoken of, it's, talked about, it's meant, you know, solid gold, not the gold plating. But of course, as a Muslim, if something makes you appear amongst Muslims to be disobedient to Allah, then those things should be avoided. When a person looks at a gold watch, you know, or any other gold uh, item, something which is gold-plated or it is solid gold, it is something which you cannot distinguish unless you have bought it. There is something to indicate that it is uh, plated or not. And we know that it is prohibited in Islam for males. So why wear something which is going to create doubts in the minds of the other Muslims as to your own... Uh, Islam, your own sincerity. So, part of faith is also avoiding that doubtful area. And he compared those who deal in the doubtful or close to it, like the shepherd who is, you know, um, uh, feeding his sheep near the boundary which has been set, you know, by a king. That if you feed, bring your sheep close to the boundary to eat next to the boundary, it is very likely that some of them will go over. So stay away. Avoid it. In the area of gold teeth, if it is something which is a medical necessity, that's something else. But now, where gold teeth become, you know, a form of ornamentation, and you'll find in some parts of the world, people will wear it in that fashion, then it becomes prohibited. And a gold pen, when a person gets a pen of gold, again, this is a form of ornamentation. He puts it in his pocket, you know, solid gold parker. It has an impression on people. It is, it is not just because the solid gold pen writes better than the, you know, the steel pen. No. He's buying that solid gold pen because of the ornamental value of it. So, it would also be included amongst the 
prohibited categories of ornamentation for men. Can you raise your voice, please? Okay, let's, let's deal with that then. Our brother's question concerns uh, the Islamic practices concerning uh, how we mourn the dead. Uh, the principle set in the Sunnah are very clear. The mourning period for the widow is set. For the average person when somebody dies, it's very simple. There is no special gathering which takes place after three days or seven days or after 40 days or every year. I mean, these are innovations. Unfortunately, you know, this obsession with mourning for the dead, which Islam really, you see the whole principles of a person when they die, in Islam, Islam encourages us to bury that person right away, as quickly as possible. The idea of, you know, putting the person, laying him out in state for people to come and, you know, see from all around and all this, this is not from Islamic practice. But the person, when the person dies, they're, they're prepared as quickly as possible and buried to avoid the excesses which tend to come and you find throughout the, the world the excesses that are involved in the morning, where people become driven by grief and, and to, to do things and to say things which are displeasing to God. So Islam encourages a very quick procedure with regards to death. Praying for the dead, visiting the graves, Islam encourages it. But setting up of special rituals, you know, on special days for the dead, this is innovation in the religion. Those who practice it, you know, are displeasing Allah. Though they might think that they are pleasing Allah, this is pleasing to Allah and helpful to the dead, in fact it is not. It is not beneficial to the dead and it's displeasing to Allah. Concerning the prayer of death, will it be edible? I mean, let's say, somebody is close to us, dead in a bad way. And then uh, we do this also in, uh, in a place where there is a Would it be allowed? If somebody, for example, died in the Philippines, can we here in Riyadh make the the prayer for them? You know, we call the uh, Salat al Janaza. To make general prayer for them, of course we can. No problem. You know? But to make the janaza prayer, which is the formal prayer, this prayer should only be done, according to the sunnah, it should only be done in the cases where there is nobody to pray for that person. 
you know the prophet sallam commanded his the followers the companions in medina to make salat al-janaza for the najashi the ruler of ethiopia who had converted to islam and had kept his islam a secret the angel had informed the prophet sallam of his death and the prophet sallam informed the companions many of whom had gone to ethiopia and had taken refuge with that king so he informed them that their brother had died and they were instructed to make salat al-janazah which he led for the person who died in a place where there was no one to pray for him this is the sunnah people in practice have done this uh, even for people who are in a situation where some part of the community has prayed for them from in my point of view such a practice would require some support or some evidence from the practice of the Prophet or his companions to make it really an acceptable practice. Headstones, sealed coffins, lead coffins, tombstones, uh, 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 mausoleums, marked graves, any type of... What's, what's the situation with that as far as uh, Islam is concerned? <coughs> with regards to putting structures over graves this has been prohibited in Islam though the Muslim graveyards around the world look no different from the graveyards of the Buddhists the Hindus etc Christians with their tombstones and mausoleums etc the reality is that this is against the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad he forbade the building of structures and the placing of structures over the grave and the grave should be no more above the ground than the earth which the body displaces you dig out earth you put the body in it's going to displace some earth when you put the earth back that earth which has been displaced when the rain comes etc eventually will settle back down it is enough for us to know where the grave is within the graveyard by the roads because the graves should be buried people should be buried in rows where there are rooms where people may walk etc there's room for people to walk not just be buried haphazard over the different uh, the area so that people may end up walking on graves and once it's done in an organized fashion it will be able one is able to determine where the grave is that is sufficient now the placing of bodies in in caskets etc of course this is not from the sunnah this would be considered uh, innovation if we decided to 
take this as our standard practice. However, in some countries where Muslims are minorities, the laws of the country may insist that no one may be buried except within a casket. And as such, we may be obliged to bury people in a box. Of course, because the fact the law says you have to put them in a casket, it doesn't mean then that we go and spend, you know, thousands of dollars to buy a fancy, you know, silk-lined, you know, mahogany casket. No. We do the minimum to comply with the law. You know, the cheapest wood we can get to make a box that we can put the body in after wrapping them, well then we do that much. The Islamic position on mercy killing, so-called mercy killing, Islam prohibits it. We're not allowed to take the life of any other human being except by right. And Allah has defined the, the right, the, what are the circumstances when we are allowed to take the life of another human being. And one of them is not when the person asks you to kill them or when you feel that the person's life is so uncomfortable that they should die. It is prohibited in Islam. However, if, for example, a person may be kept alive, their bodies may be kept alive by putting them on machines, you are not Islamically required to put them on these machines. You know? If the person has died, of course, then they can keep the body itself functioning by hooking it up to machines. Or if a person is on a machine, for example, they're being treated, they're on a machine, and they die. What is known to be death, you know, in this time, brain dead, they, they are considered to be dead. For you to turn the machine off, this is not considered to be, you know, mercy killing or anything. This is just allowing the person to die. But where we take it into our own hands to take that person's life by injecting something into them or, you know, uh, using gases or whatever, this is prohibited in Islam. Dr. Death in the States would be considered a criminal in the Islamic State. And put to death. I have an officer question. In the... Uh our brother's question concerning the sacrifice at the birth of a child this is part this is what is known as the aqiqah this is part of the this uh, particular Islamic rite called the aqiqah which involves some other things too but with regards to the sacrifice uh, most often two animals were sacrificed for a boy and one for a girl however there is narration that Prophet Muhammad sacrificed or had sacrificed one for a boy in the case of Hassan and Hussein, one would sacrifice for each. So it is permissible to sacrifice one animal or two animals in the case of a boy. 
and we should remember that the sacrifice is primarily for the child on behalf of the child this is what is actually happening here some people think that primarily it is the family the parents who are doing it for on for themselves sacrificing for the child but primarily actually if you read the statement of the Prophet with regards to the sacrifice you'll see that what he's actually saying that we should do is to sacrifice on behalf of the child the child benefits from the sacrifice just as you pray on behalf of the child you may pray ask Allah to bless the child this is for the child's benefit that sacrifice is for the child. This is why Prophet sacrificed for himself. Because at the time of his birth nobody sacrificed for him. You know, they were non Muslims, etc., non believers. Uh, he sacrificed for himself. And it is allowed for you similarly to sacrifice for yourself. That is the primary principle. There is the secondary principle also that of you know the sacrifice that you are making for the child on behalf of the child that you are taking out of your own wealth and sacrificing uh, from that wealth giving thanks to Allah for the child that you have been given but as I said primarily it is on behalf of the child and for the child the food some of the meat is given to the poor and the needy you know there's blessings for that act of charity that goes to the child you're doing it for the child what is, is there a percentage of distribution? Well, usually recommended, you know, in thirds, a third uh, that you consume yourself, a third which is given to uh, the poor, and a third given to your neighbors. However, if you wish to give, you know, two thirds to the poor, you know, one sixth to your neighbor and one sixth for yourself, I mean, it's up to you, really. But to eat it all yourself you know sort of defeating part of the purpose of that sacrifice is there an age limit for the child? Uh, question is there an age limit for the child? no the preferable time is on the seventh day that is the time which is the recommended time the time which Prophet Sallam encourages to do it on however seventh day after birth uh, however you know one may if one does not have the opportunity then to do it later you know some people say okay the 14th day you know going in 7th after that or the 21st day well there's no real evidence to say it needs to be the 14th or the 21st you know the point is that uh, you may do it as long as you have the opportunity and it is something uh, wherein the child is in a sense as the Prophet ﷺ said held in mortgage to that sacrifice that in making that sacrifice it frees the child or relieves the child of something exactly what that thing is Allah knows Prophet informed us scholars have, have uh, speculated you know that this is in relationship to, to a connection which takes place at birth when every child is born that Satan you know prods that child that that touching of Satan is released or the effects of it is released with the sacrifice you know as I said this is speculation on the part of some scholars Allah knows I mean we know of the prodding which Prophet said and we know of the sacrifice 
and that it is a form of relieving the child of something which is connected to him of a debt in a sense something like a debt the other practices involve shaving the head of the child and um, the weight of the hair its value in gold and silver is given in, in uh, sadaqah, in charity the child uh, may also be circumcised on that day and a name be given to the child these are the main things the walima or the feast or the food given from the animal which is sacrificed becomes a part of it but it is not really essentially a feast because some people emphasize the feast aspect and de-emphasize the other aspects of sacrifice feeding the poor and all these type of things but part of it is the thanksgiving is the feast wherein the poor should be invited to partake you know as well as neighbors etc friends, family oh that's at the birth this is not the aqiqah at the time of birth uh, it is recommended to recite uh, the adhan whether you know some people are saying the adhan in the right ear and the aqam in the left ear uh, however this narration is not authentic uh, but the recitation of the adhan uh, at the birth of the child is uh, from what I recall an authentic uh, tradition I'm going to all these things well, uh, brother mentioning honey on the lips of the child, I don't know about honey, but the practice of Prophet was to chew uh, dates and to put it in the, chew it up into a mush and put it in the mouth of the child. Uh, young children that were brought to him. At the time of birth, I don't know of any uh, instructions or practice to put anything directly in the mouth of the child. Acts of worship for the dead, particular ones have been sanctioned by the Prophet Hajj on behalf of a relative who was unable to make Hajj, uh, fasting on behalf of a relative who had made an intention to fast and was unable to do so. These have been specifically permitted and instructed by the Prophet Muhammad Some scholars have uh, further made analogy, you know, qiyas on this to include also praying on behalf of the dead, you know, to make a voluntary prayer and ask Allah to give the reward to the dead. Uh, this may be acceptable and it may not be the safe thing is to stick with that which the Prophet ﷺ gave us which is clear and as much as possible in the actual uh, practices, rites of Islam we try to avoid you know, analogies which will introduce things which were actually not done you know but I, I wouldn't want to say uh, that it is prohibited, haram if a person, uh, you know, makes a 
voluntary prayer and ask Allah to give the reward to the dead person because it does have a basis in general in the uh, acceptance of the Hajj and the fasting uh, our brother <coughs> was somewhat uh, disturbed by the implications of the aqiqah in terms of removing from the child something that it smells of the original sin. However, uh, as we pointed out, um, that this had something to do with those who have tried to explain it this way with Satan affecting the child at birth not that the, that the child is born with a particular sin that they are held to account for you know that it becomes a burden on them right but um, at the time of, of birth and I, again as I said this is only speculation as to whether the aqiqah is actually directly related to this or not you know at the time of birth that a person uh, is touched by Satan uh, this is a part of the struggle or the effects of it is a part of the struggle between good and evil that we live this is a mechanism by which free will is or finds a, a, a room to, to operate you know, because if there isn't that struggle then the free will becomes meaningless right I mean that to me is the most obvious connection with the touch of Satan however as I said what the Prophet said in terms of the child uh, exactly what it is we don't know the Prophet said it in terms which were not uh, of obvious meaning but that in your slaughter of the child you are doing something on behalf of the child you are doing something which is of benefit to the child and as I said this is like prayer for the child when you pray for the child pray that Allah bless the child that that child benefits from it and when a person is uh, having relationship whereby a child may be created then we are instructed to make a particular dua where we ask Allah to keep Satan away from whatever he has destined would be ours from this relationship no original but in any case it's not required to it's recommended highly recommended but not compulsory if one did not do so one is not committing a sin aqiqah the definition of aqiqah is the slaughtering of an animal on behalf of the child 
shaving of the hair giving its value in gold or silver in charity the naming of the child one word I can't define it in one word initiation no I wouldn't want to call it initiation or introduction if Islam encourages us not to fear death why do some Muslims commit suicide and go to hell Uh, they do not fear death at the time that they commit suicide well I wouldn't want to say necessarily that they don't fear death but life at that point in time appears to them to be worse than death life at that time appears to be worse than death likely they have not understood life or death because it's only an ignorant person who would reach a state or would actually consider that it's better to die than to live because if we understood what is in front of us after dying in terms of coming to account etc etc we would be worried that what we have done in this life would not be sufficient to carry us to paradise and so we would not be seeking death in the sense at our own hands but if we have understood that we will be held to account for what we do in this life and that the greatest deed that we can do is to give our life for the pleasure of God then we find martyrdom and the difference the line between the martyr and the one who commits suicide is a very fine line it's a fine line which goes back ultimately to intent our brother also uh, added that um, when a person commits suicide is in fact uh, contradicting or disbelieving in Allah's promise that he will not burden any of us more than we can bear that is this life will never become so unbearable that death would be better that whatever burdens we face whatever calamities befall us it will be within the bounds or the, our ability 
our abilities to handle it if we are patient because Allah promises that with every difficulty comes ease so it comes for a period of time but it doesn't last forever there will be points of ease which come out of it come from it so it is really a question of us being patient when we become impatient and choose to rid ourselves of this life we are in fact disbelieving in the promise of Allah yeah okay uh, brother also added that you know there is a dua which Prophet recommended uh, for those of us who reach the point where our sickness or whatever is so painful that we have we feel like it would be better if we died if we reach that point we still are not allowed to wish for death still prohibited he gave us instead a dua to say that if dying is better then please let me die but if living is better then let me live that's as far as we can go And as you said, there are different opinions concerning uh, photographs. Um, you are mentioning a particular aspect, photographs which are kept merely for remembrance uh, of family, uh, kept, you know, in a personal location, not put out on display, blown up, hung on the walls, etc., etc. Um, this area for those people who consider photography to be the modern day technological version of painting of the past it becomes prohibited under all circumstances except those of necessity those where it is absolutely necessary Others consider photography to be different from the process of painting, the creation of images by human hand, 
and compare it rather to images of a mirror reflected images which nobody disputes are permissible you as an individual I would advise to look at the evidence of both sides and then choose for yourself not what is pleasing to yourself you know what agrees with what you're doing but that which appears to be the most correct most accurate and of course the principle of avoiding that in which you feel doubt for that which you are certain about is a highly recommended principle by the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Well, you see, ultimately, what determines, you know, our brother is just mentioning that when you speak to one person, you get one opinion, you know, what is explained seems to put you in one direction, you speak to another person, they send you in another direction. When you pick up a book, with your limited knowledge, you may not be able to discern whether the material is uh, correct or not and maybe send you in another direction. Uh, the bottom line, brother, is that the right and wrong in Islam is based on Quran and Sunnah and the practice of the companions, early Muslim scholars. So, wherever an opinion is being given, the evidence is brought, you have to look at the sources of the opinion. If on one hand you find those who have this opinion, they have so many hadiths, so many statements of Prophet which seems to prohibit this thing. And on the other hand, what you find is somebody or people who all of their arguments are intellectual, logical arguments. And they don't seem to have any hadith, any kind of statements of Quran and Sunnah to support them. Then, you know, we're safest where the evidence is based on revelation. Because as Ali radiallahu anhu once informed us that if the religion were to be based merely on intellectual logical understanding and interpretation then the bottom of the sock should be white instead of the top however I saw Rasulullah wipe the top and not the bottom 
So this is sort of telling, it's not to say that we don't use our brains, etc. But, you know, when we are researching or seeking understanding of Islamic issues, we should give primacy to the evidence based on revelation. Then we seek to understand that evidence. To, to apply it to our circumstance, we have to understand it. But where you find people who are arguing merely from logic and they don't seem to have evidence to support their arguments, then this is telling you that it is better to avoid that opinion, to avoid that position. This is how when we are reading books, how do we determine so many different books on the market? How do we know the material, as you said, we are reading? Is this reliable? Is it not reliable? If you see the person talking for pages and pages and pages, you don't see any quotes from the Quran and from the statements of Prophet Sallam, you know, the, the practice or statements of the companions of the Prophet Sallam, so forth. Just words, 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 words. Then beware. It's not to say for sure all in this is going to be false, but I'm just saying beware. Because the tradition of Islamic scholarship is to support whatever is said by the Quran, the Sunnah, or the practice of the companions of the Prophet and the early uh, understanding of the early generation of scholars. There is some kind of uh, reference, reference to authentic sources. This is the way by which Muslims have in the past and those who are honest in their scholarship in the present present uh, the arguments or the rulings for Islamic practice and thought. Uh, any other questions or comments? In reference to the uh, situation in Bosnia and the situation with Muslims uh, in Burma and the uh, Muslims in Somalia and other places, is there any uh, evidence or anything, any current news that says that there are large numbers or moderate numbers of people who are committing suicide out of despair because of the situation? That they're faced with at the present time? I, I haven't heard any uh, anything to indicate that uh, there are people in large numbers committing suicide. Nothing like the stock market crash or anything like that in the United States, where people have been known to commit suicide over financial loss. What I'm saying is that the situation that they're faced with is a lot worse than the situation uh, of, faith, of losing something financial, but yet they still seem to keep their faith in Allah, regardless of, you know, whatever their, their understanding may be, they, they seem to, to, to shun committing suicide. It's what it seems to me. I'm asking, of course, I, I know you have a, maybe, inshallah, a source of information. I just want to know if there was anything to indicate that there were large numbers of, or any numbers of suicides, you know, moderate or whatever. No, I have not heard anything, you know, to that uh, effect. And, uh, in fact, uh, the patience by which Muslims have have borne the calamities as I mentioned earlier, you know, has amazed 
certain people from the West who have been amongst them, who I found uh, in recent uh, articles of Muslims accepting Islam, in, uh, sorry, uh, Americans accepting Islam in Somalia, you know, where Muslims seem to be at the worst in the circumstance. They're killing themselves and starving to death, and yet American military people are going there, being amongst them, and being amazed by some quality that they have that has led them to accept Islam. Alhamdulillah. Okay, inshallah, we'll uh, close the session down. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika. Ashadu wa la ilaha al-ant. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. We ask Allah to help us to realize the shortness of this life, the realities of death, and to help us, to give us the tawfiq, to prepare ourselves as we should for that which we cannot escape. <laughs>